2: Good morning, this is Ben and Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. And um, today, our guest, courtesy of the Miami Book Fair, is the esteemed author, William Taupin. He is the Bertrand Snell Professor of Political Science, um, emeritus at Amherst College, and he just finished a 10-year Labor of Love Um entitled Gorbachev, His Life and Times by William Taubman. And it is uh, getting rave reviews as an important biography of an important man um, who presided over the end of the Soviet Union. In fact, I, I was in the Rose Garden in 1987 when Ronald Reagan welcomed Gorbachev. And who'd have thought that in a mere four years later that the, the man who presided over this huge empire... Would, would submit his resignation as a, on Christmas Day, nineteen ninety one, as a country that no longer existed. So, but trust Tommy, you're with us. I am. Thank you. Glad to be with you. And um, you, you, your, your biography of, of um, Mikhail Gorbachev is based on in part uh, a n- number of interviews. You conducted eight interviews with Gorbachev in the process.
3: Yes, that's right. My wife and I, she who taught Russian uh, at Lammers College for many years, interviewed him eight times for about two hours each.
2: and um, one of the, you opened the book with actually with a quote from your subject that Gorbachev is hard to understand. That must have been offputting when your subject himself tells you its <laughs> that the road ahead is going to be difficult.
3: No, actually, when I heard that, which was very early in the process, uh, in I think 2006, uh, I immediately thought that could be the first words of my book. And sure enough, that's where they are. They're the very <laughs> first words of the introduction to my book. A kind of challenge to me and to the reader to uh, try to understand a man
2: who is hard to understand. Yeah, and do you think he, he enjoys that or he just recognizes that there's a, he has a certain uh, way of... If, maybe a distance from people. Well, I think I think he, well, I know he has a sense of humor. And at the time,
3: uh, you know, he said, how are you doing? I'd only been working on the book for a few months. And I said, uh, he said, how's it going? And I said, slowly, I'm afraid. And he said, that's okay. Gorbachev is hard to understand. But when I thought about it some more, I thought He's maybe, maybe he was telling me that, Maybe he was giving me an important clue to his own character, namely that he himself finds himself hard to understand. And I wasn't sure about that, but um, as I worked on the book, I came across a uh, a quote from his closest ally, Alexander Yakovlev, who in effect said, yes, he has trouble understanding himself. And that then became uh, a kind of thread in the book, understand himself What does he like about himself? Uh, What does he not like about himself? Does he react when good things happen to him? How does he react when bad things happen to him? And this is all part of a biography, trying to think yourself into the head of your subject.
2: And there's a certain inherent contradiction in Gorbachev, in that you you have, on one hand, uh, he was the ultimate insider. You know, he rose quite rapidly within the, the Soviet political structure. Yet at the same time, he was an outsider, and he was a reformer. And you, you, your book goes into how he befriended the you know, kind of the thought leader behind Prague Spring in college at Moscow State. And uh, you know he was a, a more aligned with Khrushchev, with Khrushchev than you know the Stalin era. In fact, his his family member was imprisoned under Stalin, and sent in an exile to Siberia. Well, that's really
3: the essence of the man. He once describes himself in his memoirs as both a product and an anti-product of the Soviet system. Uh, and he was a product because he was a young man raised in Stalinism, and he actually won a prize in high school for a high-flown tribute to Stalin. Uh, he was promoted later in life because the bosses in Moscow perceived him as a kind of model product of the communist system. But all along, he was developing doubts, uh, beginning with the time which you just mentioned, when his both his grandfathers were arrested in the 1930s and sent into the gulag. Uh, they both survived, fortunately. Uh, but later on in life, you can you can see his doubts developing until he gets to the point where he decides he wants to change the whole
2: system. And and he comes at in a critical time. You had, the, you know, the Brezhnev era from, you know, 64 to 1982 where he was in, he was part of kind of the expansion of the Soviet Empire into Afghanistan, um, cracking down on dissent in, you know, Czechoslovakia. And, but then you had the, the two very brief periods of Soviet leaders who, you know, who died while in office, and, and plus you would have know the kind of aging um, Brezhnev at the end, and so it was you have a stark contrast with this new, young, energetic leader. Well, I I paid a lot of
3: attention to the years before he becomes the Soviet leader in 1985. I think as much of one third of the book is really trying to figure out the mystery of how. Gorbachev, the person, becomes, quote unquote, gorbachev, the the gravedigger of the Soviet system. And one of the things I discovered about those years, from, let's say fifty five when he graduates from the university to yeah. eighty five when he becomes leader, is he's very canny. he He keeps his mouth shut at key moments. Uh, he does what he's told. at one point in nineteen sixty eight, he is instructed. At this point, he's the second man in his province party hierarchy. He's instructed to condemn the Czech, the Prague Spring, and he does so, even though at that point, his best friend from Moscow University is the number two man in Czechoslovakia. So he keeps his mouth shut. He keeps his eyes open. But once in a while, you can see signs of his uh, of his doubts growing and when he gets to Moscow in 78, he's got seven more years before he becomes the Soviet leader. He is in the Politburo, along with Brezhnev, and then Andropov, and then Chernenko, the three leaders. But they are nearly dead men walking by that time. They can barely think, walk, breathe. Andropov is on a dialysis, dialysis machine, and so by the time 85 comes, they are... They, Soviet Union in general, and the people in the Kremlin, are desperate to get a young, vigorous, imaginative man to be their leader, and they pick him. But one more point about this, uh, the Brezhnev, Andropov, and Chernenko are not hard acts to follow. I view them as too easy in the sense that Gorbachev thinks that his efforts to reform the country are going to go much more smoothly, and, in fact they do, because he thinks his youth and figure and leadership will do the trick. But in the end, they don't.
2: Well, why is it that the the, the two old men that um, succeeded Brezhnev? Why did the two old men?
3: You mean Andropov and Chernenko? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, um, they were the Andropov when he was put in charge was thought to be. Uh, I don't think they realized how sick he was, and he had a reputation as a tough guy. He'd been the head of the KGB for quite a few years, uh, and he was also thought to be a smart guy. So he looked like a kind of ideal combination, but almost immediately after he was chosen, uh, he fell ill. Now, when he died, Gorbachev was seemed to be next in line, and a lot of people expected him and wanted him to become the leader. But there were these hardliners in the Kremlin who were afraid of him and they preferred Chernenko who was also old and sick and they thought they could control him. But once he died, almost immediately, then they had no choice. At that point, they couldn't face appointing another old, doddering, senile type. So they chose Gorbachev.
2: And right away... Seems the well obviously there's a lot of domestic issues he has to face, but within eight months of coming into office, he's he's in Geneva meeting President Reagan, and because you know basically foreign policy relations with the United States have been somewhat stalled by the the uh, infirmity of the Soviet leaders.
3: Well, actually, the, the Reagan-Gorbachev relationship is very interesting and very important. You'll remember, your listeners, those who were alive back then, will remember that Reagan was seemed to be very tough on the Russians in the first few years. He referred to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. He threatened them with uh, what he called the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars program, uh, and... When Gorbachev Mm -hmm. came in, it looked as if he and Reagan would have nothing in common. But I try to show in my book that they turned out to be almost perfect partners. And that Geneva was the turning point. Because by the end of Geneva, they both thought, and they talk about this in their memoirs, that they had made a breakthrough. So I went back and looked very carefully at the transcripts of all of their talks at Geneva. And if you look at what they said to each other, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything there that would explain their sense that they'd made a breakthrough. So I decided that what had happened at Geneva that accounts for the breakthrough is their personal chemistry. They had discovered that they res- that they liked each other immensely. They discovered that they had many things in common. Uh, and I think that this personal chemistry, which I try to show as vividly as I can in the book, helps to account for their personal bond, which led almost immediately at the next summit in Reykjavik to a agreement. They almost agreed to
2: abolish nuclear weapons. That that was, I remember, I met Reykjavik, and the notion that, of all people, Ronald Reagan put that on the table, Well, Reagan in his own way, Reagan and Gorbachev, as I say,
3: were quite similar. They were both uh, idealists. They both were willing to think outside, outside the box, meaning out differently from the way their advisors did. And their advisors, especially in the United States, but in Soviet Union too, were convinced that nuclear weapons had deterred war not only nuclear war, but, but conventional war between the two powers. Sure. They, they had decided that nuclear weapons, but Reagan and Gorbachev, thinking outside the box, decided that nuclear weapons could blow up the world, and they wanted to get rid of them. And if they had finally agreed, which they did not at Reykjavik, to abolish nuclear weapons, I'm sure that they both would have been berated by their allies at home who dared to do so because Reagan's Reagan's colleagues like uh, Caspar Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they were convinced that nuclear weapons should not be abolished but rather should be kept.
2: And keep in mind, this is the same president who early in his first term, when not aware that the mic was on, made some joke about, you know, we're about to begin bombing the you know, and the bombing begins in five minutes. and um, so for this president of all people to say, oh, we're going to eliminate nuclear weapons. Now, one thing that happened early in um, Gorbachev's reign was Chernobyl., Yes. and the, to what extent did that play into Gorbachev's view of nuclear weapons? I think
3: it did. I think it I think it <clears throat> was a kind of turning point in his thinking, both about nuclear weapons and about his domestic politics. Nuclear weapons because, as he later said, all it took was the eruption, explosion of one nuclear reactor to spew radioactivity all over northern Europe. Think what would happen if hundreds of nuclear bombs went off. So I think Chernobyl uh, underlined for him the importance of trying to limit, if not eliminate nuclear weapons but at home it also was a turning point because what happened he had already begun what they they called glossnost, which meant openness uh transparency in in what the government did but what happened at chernobyl was that his advisors on atomic energy people he regarded as the most uh expert and outstanding of of soviet bureaucrats physicists uh covered them. Covered the truth they didn't tell him the truth they pretended or they acted as if Chernobyl was not a big deal so he learned from that that Glassnost had to be expanded and ultimately it was until it became
2: virtually free speech and one thing I, I, I was on Capitol Hill when Chernobyl yes. was announced I remember um, Senator my only Malcolm Wallop walking in and making the announcement almost gleeful that, you know, this is, this is proof of the failure of the Soviet system. And was, was that perceived in that way within the Soviet Union? That was just perceived as a, a marker of shame and that clearly our system isn't working. We have to change things.
3: Yes, because, um, you know, in the Soviet Union, uh, For many years, the regime had treated atomic energy as its highest priority, both militarily and uh, in civilian uh, reactors. They had put a lot of money into it. They had put their best people into it. Uh, They had starved uh, consumer goods in order to emphasize the military and and nuclear matters. So for this to collapse, for that reactor to blow up, and then for... uh, for the bureaucracy to try to cover up what had happened, uh, and then for all the confusion that followed as they tried to fix the situation, was a sign that there was something rotten uh, about uh, the very, the very aspect of the system of which they were most proud.
2: And one thing that both President. Reagan and you know, Gorbachev had in common. It it seems as they both had wives that were very um, kind of their right hands in some ways. They, they were the most trusted advisors. Can you talk tell us a little about the relationship with Raisa?
3: Well, actually, yes. I in, when I, I I have a passage in the book where I go down a list. Uh, I talk about the things they had in common. They both came from small towns. They were both. Uh, kind of optimistic. They were both, it turns out, we know Reagan was an actor, but Gorbachev was an actor in high school. They both uh, dated their leading ladies, that is, the the girls who played opposite them in the high school productions. So there's a whole long list of, of uh, similarities, and one of them is their marriages. Uh, and they were both... Both Reagan and and Gorbachev, as I say, were kind of above-the-battle optimists who assumed things would work out. But their wives, Nancy Reagan and Raisa Gorbachev, were both worriers. They worried particularly about what would happen to their husbands. They worried. They took very hard criticisms of their husbands. Uh, And both Gorbachev, they were both difficult women and viewed as such by a lot of people. But it was as if their husbands didn't notice that, because they were so uh, temperamentally upbeat and sunny and, and uh, optimistic about things that they didn't seem to notice what struck other people about their wives. And all of this adds up, in my, uh, in my view, to a set of similarities that led them to like each other, that is, Gorbachev mm-hmm. and
2: Reagan. You know, when you're... Yes, the, the two wives did not <laughs> decided Well, they did that's not like each other. You
3: know, I I I have to. I, I often think about that. Is there a contradiction in my own analysis if I say the two presidents liked each other because they were similar, and the two wives didn't like each other because they were similar? And what I've what I decided is there's no contradiction because when people uh what, when people are similar in the qualities that they are proud to possess, and they see in each in the other, those qualities, they feel good. But when people are similar in qualities that they don't like, when they're insecure and they worry about that, as both the wives did, and when they see those qualities in each other, then I think it annoys them. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm a sort of amateur psychologist, I once taught a course with a colleague at Amherst College for 10 years, a professor of psychology, called Personality and Political Leadership. So I know a bit about it. But anyway, that's how I wriggle out of what might seem to be a contradiction.
2: Well, um, we have to wriggle out for a short break for our sponsors, to we'll be back after these messages. We're talking to William Taub on Gorbachev, His Life in Times.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
0: Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded
1: the best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
2: And we're back, and we're talking with William Taubman about Gorbachev and his life in times. And I heard an issue with you where you said this book took 10 years, which um, was a breakneck speed compared to your last book, on Khrushchev, which took 20 years.
3: Yes, I I, uh, I joke about that. I say I did this one twice as fast, or
2: <laughs> I think better to say half as slowly. <laughs> and so, having spent 20 years on working on a Khrushchev biography, was that were you somewhat intimidated knowing what what a big task to take, writing a, a Gorbachev biography would be? Um,
3: y- yes and no. I, I, I was not so much intimidated by how long Khrushchev had taken because for the first uh, almost eight or nine years of that project, I had no, this is the 1980s, I had no access to Russian Soviet archives, access to interviews with Khrushchev's family. So I was, it was only about halfway through when the Soviet Union began to crumble that I met people, could talk to them. Uh, and could work in archives. Uh, son what did intim- at Brown? Doesn't
2: he? Sorry. Doesn't Khrushchev's son teach
3: at Brown University? Khrushchev's son, yes, is at Brown. I don't think he yeah. teaches anymore, but he lives in oh, okay. Cranston, Rhode Island. Yes. Uh, but anyway, when I started working on Gorbachev, what intimidated me was the sense that Khrushchev had been the kind of man who wore his emotions on his sleeve, uh, and you know, you could see what he was thinking. When he uh, blew up, uh, or when he brandished his shoe at the United Nations, Gorbachev (laughs) is a much more honest and more of a challenge to try to figure out. So, in that sense, I had the feeling this project was going to be more difficult.
2: And uh, Khrushchev is important to Gorbachev's kind of political awareness. You know, it's while he's. I believe it's while he's studying or just just after he was studying he he went to the the party congress where Khrushchev announced the plan to kind of reform the Soviet economy and actually surpass the US in you know, per capita GDP and but you know he, Khrushchev was a reformer who clearly did, he had a short-lived um leadership because he you know he took on tried to take on the Soviet system, tried to take on the Stalinists, and, and ultimately failed. And so how did that impact Gorbachev when he, when he took over?
3: Well, you're quite right. Uh, I think it was both an inspiration and a cautionary warning. He was an inspiration in that he had de-Stalinized the Soviet Union. He had denounced Stalin in 1956, and he had carried out reforms. And there had been a thaw, as they called it, in culture with the censorship eased. So Gorbachev wanted to continue Khrushchev's work. Khrushchev had eliminated and stopped. But on the other hand, Khrushchev's fate, he was ousted in 1964 by his colleagues in the Kremlin. Khrushchev's fate was a warning to Gorbachev, especially when Gorbachev decided to go farther and faster than Khrushchev had gone. Uh, And he was worried almost throughout his period in power, Gorbachev was worried that he might meet the fate of Khrushchev. And that led him to play a very complicated game, the hardliners in the Kremlin whom he was afraid of. At one point, uh, he called them in a conversation with one of his close aides, he called them a rabid dog whom he had to keep on a short leash. Uh, That is... He was afraid they would go after him, so he tried to keep them close right. rather than moving them away. But eventually, they tried to oust him in the, in the coup, the abortive coup of August 1991. Now, I, I, I remember that coup, and that was basically, the, you know, he survived the coup. But he, did he survived survive the coup, the coup. <laughs> yes, he did. They put him under house arrest at his villa uh, in the Crimea on the Black Sea. But to, uh, but two or three days later, the coup fizzled uh, because the, a lot of people came out in the streets in Moscow. Boris Yeltsin, you, you may remember, climbed up on a tank. Uh, and the coup failed. Gorbachev came back to Moscow in what appeared to be triumph. But actually, it was the beginning of the, uh, of the end because from then on, it was Yeltsin who was ascendant.
2: I actually I remember it well because we were um, going out to the Outer Banks to for a vacation, and unfortunately a hurricane decided that we, we weren't going to be allowed onto the the island for a couple of days. So we were in some dumpy little hotel waiting to get into the Outer Banks, and uh, we had nothing to do but watch CNN as this whole drama unfolded, and um, it was just remarkable to see this you know, chaos in such an ordered society as the Soviet Union. But it raises an important question. And yes. it seems to be that China, China has followed one model. And you often hear that China took the lesson from what happened to Gorbachev in that Gorbachev, he pursued political reform and economic reform at the same time. I realize that's dangerous. And that really, you only can do political reform after you've been successful at economic reform i put it a slightly differently. I would say that, Khrushchev, that Gorbachev
3: pursued political reform, radical political reform, and only very moderate economic reform, whereas the Chinese have pursued radical economic reform and minimal political reform. And you're quite right. The Chinese have decided that Gorbachev is, did it exactly backwards, exactly wrong. He's the, the kind of model for them of what not to do. But that then raises the question uh, of why he didn't try what they did, and, and I think. What does he say? Yes. And what is he well, does he say? Well, he's Think of that theory. Well, he says that he says that uh, Russia wasn't equipped, wasn't ready for the kind of reform the Chinese carried out, and also, especially after the Chinese crushed the demonstrations at Tiananmen Square in in 1989. Gorbachev point that Gorbachev was in Beijing just before that happened. And when he when it happened and he was home, it became a kind of warning to him of what he should not do if and when there were demonstrations in the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe. And so when those demonstrations began that year in the Baltic states and in Eastern Europe, he did not use force to try to crush them. So in a way, each side learned the lesson from the other, but in retrospect, it looks as if the Chinese, won, uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, won out. I should add uh, that I agree with him that China, that what worked for China would not necessarily have worked for Russia. For example, the Chinese peasants remembered how to be private farmers because the Chinese Revolution took place in 1949 and Deng Xiaoping began the reforms in the 1970s. Now compare that with the Soviet Union where the revolution took place in 1917 and where they wiped out in the 1920s and 30s the the farmers who knew how to operate on their own and replaced them with collective farms. So by the 1980s, the, the, the Soviet peasants... Had no clue of how to do what the Chinese did naturally.
2: And and so, Gorbachev sees the you know, Tiananmen Square and realizes that you know, that could happen here. But he wasn't willing to do that. In fact, one thing you credit Gorbachev with, which you know, very few people do, although he did get the Nobel Peace Prize, he brought an end to an empire with any major wars or you know mass killings that uh, happened that were attended with the whole transition of the British Empire and you know throughout the world, whether we're talking in you know India you know, with all the violence that happened there or in you know, Malaysia or, or wherever. and um, but you know, he doesn't really get credit for that. Yes, I think he, you know, he he did that. He should get
3: credit for it. He does get some credit in the West. But the irony is that in his own country, or now called Russia, no longer the Soviet Union, people hold that against him. Uh, that is, he is despised by the majority, it would appear, of his own people for many things, one of which is the loss of the empire. And they do not focus on the fact that uh, the alternative scenario, Let's say 91, let's say it continued to exist, maybe even to this very day then what would happen it's quite plausible that it would collapse in a sea of blood you know there's a war going on now between russia and ukraine but it's relatively tame compared to the kind of war that took place between serbia and croatia when yugoslavia collapsed or imagine yeah bosnia remember the end of the romanian dictator ceausescu who was uh, executed with his wife elena in 1989 well, if the Soviet Union had continued to exist, it's quite possible that its leaders might have been murdered by crowds uh, somewhere along the line. So it's, it's hard to credit a man for uh, preventing what didn't happen,
2: <laughs> but I think he should be. And since you point about how he's hated, in fact, you know, he ran for president and got a whopping 1%. Yeah, the, Less than one percent. He got half. Half of
3: one percent. That, it, that really, was a very yes. Yeah. That was a very sad episode because you know he shouldn't have done it. It was a painful thing for him, and particularly painful for his wife, who had had a stroke in 1991 during that abortive coup, and would never fully recovered, but felt out of love and loyalty that she should accompany her husband everywhere, including to endless rallies in 1996, at which some of which he was booed out of the hall and people spat in his face. It was a very, very sad uh, uh, episode in the life of of Gorbachev.
2: And... Really, I mean, when you make you go through painstaking detail to explain that this man was, at one point, the most powerful man in the world. I mean, he had, in terms of the power he had associated with his office as the you know, premier of the I Soviet Union, mean, was far greater than anything any Western leader had. And Well, I, from yes, that, I, mm-hmm, okay? mm-hmm. I make well, a from big deal being, of that. You know, half of one point, half one percent, you know,
3: what a fall. Yes, yes. Well, it's part, you know, I, put, I depict, I pose in the beginning of my book a question Was he uh, a hero uh, or was he a kind of tragic hero? And I come to the conclusion he was a tragic hero heroic because of what he achieved, but tragic because of what he failed to achieve and also because he contributed to his own failure. I think. The main reason... All it, tragic characters do. Yes. You know, in yes, literature, yes. Exactly. Um, and what, you know, I, I asked myself, what was it about him? What were his fatal flaws? And I think that although you can point to a series of strategic and tactical errors, mistakes, I think the big thing was that he was too confident in himself. Confident that he could change his country and the world. And up to a point he did, but beyond that, he failed. And also confident that that he could control his situation at home. He could control his hardline adversaries by keeping them close. And he could control Boris Yeltsin, whom he regarded as a lightweight. But Yeltsin turned out to be a, uh, a very dangerous enemy who eventually prevailed, as we all know.
2: Right. Now, um... There's a lot of discussion in the United States about winning the Cold War. You know, who won the Cold War? And a lot of you know, Republicans like to claim it was Ronald Reagan. You know, I'm fond of saying that you know, Ronald Reagan and, and JFK would never have had their famous speeches. And um, it had not been for Harry Truman and the Berlin List, But you But know, that's not necessarily mm-hmm. neither here nor there. But there's a, there's a telling um, passage in your book. And I'll just try to read it quickly. Is You talk about why did Gorbachev um, turn against the West. And he said, It was not he who changed, he would say, but the Western powers, particularly the United States, which abandoned cooperation with Moscow. In Gorbachev's view, neither side won the Cold War, which damaged both sides, and which both sides cooperated to end. He thought his friend, President Bush, shared that view, especially after Bush refrained from crowing over the fall of the the wall. And the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, but in 1992, Bush declared by the grace of God, America won the Cold War. Moreover, like Gorbachev added bitterly in 2014 interviews, the Americans began to frame even before he left. Back in 1990, he insisted he and other world leaders, President Bush and Pope John Paul, for example, talked about creating a new world order that would be more just, humane, and secure than its predecessor. But the Americans continued to play the old game so as to create a new empire headed by themselves. They patted us on the shoulder. They kept saying, well done, well done, you're doing the right thing. But all the while, they were tearing us down, looting us, tearing us apart. Well, that, (laughs) yes, uh, Gorbachev is very
3: bitter about how the United States treated him at the very end and about how the United States treated Russia after he was out of office. Uh, it's very interesting to see that his criticisms of the United States track very closely with those of Vladimir Putin. We can talk, in, if you'd like, about Gorbachev and Putin, but apart from that, I think Gorbachev felt betrayed. He thought that that Bush had agreed with him on something like the the need to uh, transcend the division of Europe between East and West on the need to see eventually an end to both Warsaw Pact and NATO. And yet the United States didn't, did not agree. It turned out, uh, in 19, yeah, the opposite. So quite bitter about, uh, the way he was treated. And I think he is not wrong to feel that way. Um, uh, I understand why the United States wanted to hang on to NATO. After all, it had worked all through the Cold War. But, you know, if you look at the way in which the expansion of NATO has contributed to the new Cold War between Russia and the United States, you can make a plausible argument that we might have been better off to try to seek a new architecture of security in Europe. I know that's not a popular view
2: in the United States, but it's at least a plausible one. Yes, and and one that's consistent with history, given that this is a country that was twice invaded from the West, you know, first by France and Napoleon, then by Hitler, with very tragic consequences. But um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to William Toppin, author of Gorbachev and his Times.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: Webmasterradio.fm is the destination for education, entertainment, and engagement.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
2: And we're back, and we're talking with William Taubman, author of His Life and Times. And you're going to be speaking at the MA Book Fair, and I believe it's on November 18th. And, yes. And, um... And you you have a, you're, you're on quite, it looks like a quite extensive book tour. Um, are you coming out west by chance? Uh, sorry, did you ask if I'm coming out west? Yes.
3: Yes, I've just gotten back from California where I spent a week, uh, spoke at Berkeley at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco and at Stanford. I've been running around like a chicken without its head. Uh, <laughs> spoke on the East Coast, spoke in Amsterdam and in London. Uh, and looking
2: forward to speaking in Miami. And um you, we talked before the break about Gorbachev and Putin. and you know, it is is it possible? is it seem in the Soviet excuse me, in Russia that you know putin is is trying to re- revive the the sense of empire or at least the sense of importance of the Russia Russia on the world stage? And what do you yes, exactly. think about that?
3: That's exactly what he's doing. And uh, the way I put it is that although Gorbachev and Putin were opposites in Gorbachev was a Democrat, Putin seems to be an authoritarian, Gorbachev presided over the end of empire, Putin is trying to rebuild it, at least in part. (laughs) Although they're opposites, uh, there's a... Putin's whole program is the reverse of Gorbachev's. It's as if Gorbachev bequeathed program to Putin, consisting of doing the opposite of what Gorbachev had tried to do. So they, they're they linked in that way. Uh, and that helps to explain why Gorbachev's view of Putin has turned out to be surprisingly mixed. Uh, he supported him for election as president in 2000. He opposed him in 2012. He has praised him, and he's also condemned him. They have a very strange relationship although I think by this point they never meet or talk uh, because they are estranged.
2: Well, I think what's the quote you have? Putin said someone should cut um, cut Gorbachev's tongue short. Uh, That's probably Uh, a term term of endearment. No, no. No, well...
3: um, at the Miami at the Miami Book Fair, I'm going to be on a panel uh, with a biographer of Putin, Stephen right, was Lee Meyer. i that out.
2: Yes, yes. But I guess that would be an interesting conversation, really, on uh, how the two one one created the other in some ways.
3: One created the other by you know in in this sort of backwards uh, backwards way that I just spoke about. Uh, Putin, you know, has said this has often been quoted that the collapse. the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He's never said this, but I think Gorbachev would agree that it was a a catastrophe. I think he would see it as a moral political or a social political catastrophe. That is, Gorbachev, well, Gorbachev, when Gorbachev assumed power in 1985, his mission, as he understood it, was to modernize and reform and thereby save the Soviet Union which he to which he attributed great value because among other things it was a multinational state which included everything from Estonians on the Baltic Sea to Uzbeks in Central mm-hmm. Asia and to him this was a kind of model but because it was it he hoped it had become he hoped it would have even become even more a kind of uh, happy fraternal a combination of different peoples. I mean, of course, he was aware that there were tensions, but he thought they were corrigible, uh, and it turned out they were not. And that given a chance by Gorbachev himself, by his democratization program, by his Glossnost program, these various nations decided, most of them, many of them, that they would prefer to be independent. And so in the end, that was one big reason why the, the place blew up. So in that sense, Gorbachev failed to save what he regarded as a good uh, system, or at least one that could be made much better than it had been. He understood Stalinism was a disaster, a tragedy, uh, that it was mass murder, but he still thought that there was a, uh, a core of, of idealism in the communist idea that he could cultivate and, and bring to, uh, to flower. But that was too optimistic, along with many now, other things he believed that were too optimistic.
2: Now We only have a few minutes left, and just quickly, what was Gorbachev's view of Yeltsin?
3: Oh, the Gorbachev-Yeltsin uh, battle is really Shakespearean in, in its intensity and scope. Uh, Gorbachev began by humiliating Yeltsin Yeltsin got the last word and finished off Gorbachev. It all began in a uh, in a confrontation that I describe in the book in October 1987 when Yeltsin got up at what was supposed to be a celebratory session of the Communist Party Central Committee and shocked everyone by criticizing Gorbachev. And Gorbachev then unleashed or allowed to occur a kind of four or five hour uh, attack by everybody at the session on Yeltsin, and he, then he joined it himself. And this was deeply humiliating to Yeltsin, who never forgave or forgot. But but Gorbachev, having... And he fired him, you know, too. Less, Sorry? Didn't he fire Yeltsin from the committee? Well, he, he he fired him, but he did not banish him. He, he gave him a, a much lower post and then he allowed him to recover his standing and move against Gorbachev. And people at the time were puzzled, and to this day they're very puzzled. Why didn't Gorbachev send Yeltsin to a very small, far away country so that he would never be heard from again, let's say as Soviet ambassador? And I think the reason is that much as Gorbachev hated Yeltsin and much as he treated him very roughly, Gorbachev remained uh, committed to democracy. And so when he didn't banish Yeltsin, he was trying to be true to the best part of himself. He was a decent man. He was too decent to be the ruler of a regime like the Soviet Union.
2: Had he banished Yeltsin, would he have survived the coup? Well, that's a good question, too. (laughs) Uh, First of all, it
3: might be that... there might not have been a coup in the, in the sense that uh, Yeltsin and Gorbachev together, if they had combined their forces from the beginning, would have been a mighty alliance against the kind of people who carried out the coup. But when they were at odds, that divided the camp of Democrats between Gorbachev's people and Yeltsin's people. And that gave the
2: plotters, the
3: the conspirators an opening.
2: Now, um, in, if people want to follow you, what's the best way for them to do so? I'm glad you asked because I do have a website, but I always forget to
3: mention it. Uh, it's called it's William Taubman Books, one word: WilliamTaubmanBooks.com, and that has uh, it has videos and audios of some of my previous appearances, and it has uh, uh, links to a couple of op-ed pieces that I wrote for the Washington Post and Politico. Uh, so williamtaubmanbooks.com would be the place to look. Thank you and for mentioning you Twitter. It. And are you on Twitter? I am not on Twitter. I'm afraid I'm too
2: I, I'm 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 too old to have learned <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it does seem to be in uh, the authors we're talking to, it does seem to be a generational divide on Twitter. Yes, but I'm afraid uh, that it's true. I, I want to um, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you. And um, unfortunately, I will not be in Miami on the 18th. But um, that looks like a great discussion. Um, November eighteenth, my book here on you know, P- P- Gorbachev and Putin and in Russia today. So I wish you best of luck there, and um, thanks again for joining us. Many thanks, and you're very welcome. And this has um, been Cyber Law and Business Report for information on um, Professor Taubman and the book. You can go to our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and as always follow us on Twitter at CyberlawRadio. Radio. And um, the, this is Ben Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Check out our website internetlawcenter.net um, but, and once again thanks to Mommy Book Fair for all the great authors they sent our way and especially Professor Taubman. This is a a monumental work one last question professor what is what is your next project
3: well, I wish I knew
2: <laughs> I don't know
3: yet uh, the only thing I know is that I think I've run out of, of Russian leaders I'd like to write about uh, people suggest Putin uh, but I'm not sure it's entirely healthy to try to pry into his secrets uh, with all the power he has so
2: I, I, can I, I may try to
3: find some American to write
2: about this time well, we do have our own for characters as well. But thanks again, <laughs> Professor. And, and join us again at uh, uh, Cyber Law Business Report every Wednesday at 10 Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on WebmasterRadio.fm. Have a great week, everyone.